Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again, and thank you for joining us on yet another edition of Space Nuts. My name is Andrew Dunkley, and Fred Watson, as always, joins me to talk astronomy. Hello, Fred. Hey, Andrew. Seems like no time at all since we did 155. Funny that. <laughs> now, <laughs> I love inside jokes. Today, we're going to be talking about a, a mini moon, uh, a mini moon near uh, Neptune, in fact. Uh, we're also going to look at that uh, issue of heavy water, which stems from an episode we did um, a couple of weeks ago regarding how Earth's oceans may have come into being, uh, perhaps water deposited by asteroids. But we uh, learnt during that uh, particular discussion that there's more than one kind of water out there, and it was possible that heavy water may have ended up on Earth instead of standard water. And it prompted a question in my mind as to what our planet might be like if it was covered in heavy water and whether or not we would survive in such a, an environment. So we'll look into that uh, and we'll answer some questions about uh, whether or not wormholes exist and could we travel through them and uh, a question about the dark matter halo and the effect on time. Great questions coming up soon. But first, the mini moon of Neptune. Mm, interesting. Yeah, it's a it's a story that um, uh, has it has its origins in uh, you know basically astronomers uh, surveying the outer solar system, um, and in fact it was it was a Hubble telescope image that first alerted uh, scientists actually uh, based uh, in the United States uh, to the possibility that uh, there's another moon of Neptune. Uh, now, I've lost count of how many moons Neptune has. When I was a kid, it had four, I think, or something like that, a very small number. Uh, but now it's more because, of course, back in the 1970s, the Voyager spacecraft, uh, I think it was Voyager 2, flew by Neptune uh, and sent back images of that world. That's the only time Neptune uh, has been visited. We, we, The two outer planets, Uranus and Neptune, uh, are the, the least well studied of all the bodies in the solar system, all the large bodies in the solar system. I, I think anyway, officially it has 14. Thank you. There you are. Mm. There you are. So it's grown a bit since since my time. But it, it's got uh, an, another one. And it's a tiny object. I mean, you know, given uh, how far away Neptune is, uh, its distance is measured in billions of kilometres. Uh, it's uh, something like four or five billion kilometres, I can't remember the exact number, uh, from our from the sun. Um, but this object is about 30 kilometres across, so, you know, it's not bad going to detect it. That means it's very faint. Yeah. Um, and it was, as I said, it was on a Hubble telescope image that it was first noticed, but then what you've got to do is confirm it. Uh, and these that confirmation 
has taken quite a long time uh, because you need to observe something like that uh, very carefully, to, first of all, to, to ensure it's really there, and secondly, to try and deduce what its orbit is like. So how do you find if it's really there when it's it's only just tickling the you know the electrons on your detector uh, when you take an image of it? So what you do is you you take repeated images. Um, this is a common technique in uh, astronomy where you're trying to observe very faint uh, things. You you take multiple images of it and stack them one on top of the other. So you add the you add together digitally the the you know the the, the pixel values for each image and that will bring out anything that is very faint it will tend to enhance the contrast especially if you do it in in clever ways but the problem is if you do that with something that's moving through space uh, then just stacking a whole pile of images is going to give you it's not going to gain you anything because each image new image of the object will fall in a different place because it's moving yeah so what you have to do is take a guess as to what its motion is and then shift the images when you add them so that you're stacking uh, in a kind of motion compensated way. This is a, a bit technical, but what it does is it results in a much greater sensitivity. And that is exactly how this little world has been discovered. They, they took um, something like eight five minute exposures uh, and and then shifted them so that they didn't smear out the orbital motion of uh, this little moon. And it's there. They've, they've got it. And it's now been formally named by the International Astronomical Union. Uh, in, in the Neptunian system, the moons are conventionally named after sea creatures, as you'd expect, because Neptune's the god of the sea uh, and gods from, from Greek and Roman mythology. And so this one is called Hippocamp. Um, it's uh, actually the name of that monster. You might have seen a kind of horse-like, fish-like monster uh, that often pulls Neptune's chariot in in depictions of the way these gods uh, go around the heavens. If you look at things like that, uh, that that uh, creature is called Hippocamp, and that is now the name of this of this moon. Yeah, I'm just looking through them now. There's some fabulous names: Triton, Proteus, Despina, yeah. Galatea. Uh, Hippocamp's actually in that 14 uh, that I found. So they've they, already or, already catalogued it. it. Mm. Yeah, um, it's actually Hippocamp. Uh, orbits uh, just inside the orbit of Proteus. Proteus is a, a much bigger object. It's ten times the size of uh, of uh, Hippocamp, something like you know 350 kilometers across, um, with uh, some interesting aspects. It's actually got a big crater on it that must you know must have been caused by an impact at some at some time. Yeah, and some some of these moons aren't really all that. Um... Spherical either, are they? <laughs> no, they're not, and and hippocamp won't be either. Um, mm. It's too small to be spherical. And I understand it's also a very fast object in comparison to the orbit of our moon. Yes, that's right. So its speed is about ten kilometers per second in orbit. That's actually, in absolute terms, it's not that fast. Um, when you know any spacecraft goes into orbit around the Earth, it's traveling at, at usually about eight kilometers per second. But our moon orbits at one kilometer per second. So uh, it's much faster than the orbital speed of our moon. And of course, the, the way orbit 
dynamics work. The closer you get to your parent body and the bigger your parent body is, uh, the faster you have to orbit. And that's why Hippocamp uh, is orbiting very quickly Indeed. around the planet Neptune. Mm, okay. And there's probably more to discover out there because, um, yeah, uh, we, we're finding stuff all the time. And uh, these, these gas giants of ours keep throwing up all these uh, oddities and, and um, new discoveries. It's uh, even in our own backyard, despite the fact we've got technology that can take us into vast, um, vastly distant parts of the universe, we, we're still finding amazing things in our own backyard, which I, I think is just fabulous. Yeah, indeed. Okay, you're listening to Space Nuts. Uh, Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, Express VPN, rated number one by Tech Radar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years and I love it. When I joined Express VPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons. And there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked. And a couple of years down the track, honestly, can't complain. Their interface is very easy to use. Their, their service is second to none. Uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do, and they were brilliant. So you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all. It's all about privacy. Uh, do you really want big tech companies, governments, and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity? Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, so protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash space for three months free with a one year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now... Back to the show. Okay, we checked all four systems and team with a go. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, to a question that um, came to my mind a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about how Earth may have uh, received all its water. And uh, this stems from the possibility that new evidence may have been discovered that uh, shows that Earth's water was provided by asteroids. And it got us onto the topic of um, the kinds of water that are floating around in space, uh, one of which is heavy water, which prompted a thought in my mind, what if Earth was actually filled up with heavy water instead of standard water as we have now and is obviously the, um, the, the thing most um, necessary to maintain life on this planet? Uh, amongst other things, but it's, you know, probably the most important thing. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it, it 
got us to thinking about uh, heavy water and what if Earth was predominantly um, uh, covered in heavy water, what impact would that have on life here? Could we survive? Would we exist today? Uh, so uh, why don't we look into that a bit and see where it leads us? Indeed, we did. Um, so just to, to um, recap, it was actually comets, not asteroids, comets. that are thought to have um, brought the water to Earth. But the problem is that comets have a different mix of heavy water and, and normal water to what the Earth's ocean, uh, oceans do. And that's that's been a problem for people who suspect uh, that comets provided the Earth's oceans. Uh, but the discovery we reported a couple of weeks ago was about uh, what are called hyperactive comets, which uh, seem to have the same blend of heavy water and normal water that the Earth's oceans have. And so maybe the idea that the oceans came from comets is still viable. Mm. But yes, exactly as you said, uh, we thought uh, outside the box, as we often do, and wondered about whether heavy water is something that you can you, you can actually live in. I think um, had had the Earth's oceans been mostly heavy water, we would have evolved to be creatures that uh, used heavy water as our working fluid. We'd be slightly heavier, of course, because it, it actually weighs more. Um, but uh, we, we would have been OK, because the first thing about heavy water uh, to note is that it's not radioactive. Um, what is it? Uh, let me just uh, recap what it is. It's it's the same stuff as normal water, H2O, two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom, uh, except with heavy water, either one or both of the two hydrogen atoms uh, is what's known as deuterium. It's an isotope of hydrogen that has an extra neutron. Uh, and it's that extra neutron that gives it the extra mass and makes it different from normal water. Uh, so the, the, this is the heavier isotope of hydrogen that we're using. So, uh, OK, so imagine we as earthly beings who've evolved on the planet as it is now. What if we were confronted with large amounts of heavy water, yeah. what's going to happen? Well, we won't get fried, as I said, because it's not radioactive. And actually, um, you can you can drink it at some level. You, you can't drink much um, because of uh, the, the, there are some subtleties in the way that heavy water forms molecular bonds with other molecules uh, that will change because you're, you're you know it's not normal water that you're drinking. So so you clearly would be at risk if you started drinking huge amounts of heavy water. But um, you could drink certainly a glass of heavy water and you'd be okay. I can't say it's something I fancy doing. But, no, no. Um, you know, it's nevertheless, it would be possible. But then if you, okay, if you said, all right, let's, let's re, uh, you know, let's replace the normal water in your body because, of course, we're something like 70 or 80% water uh, our, our bodies are made of. If you were replacing that with heavy water, where would be the, the critical point? The point of no uh, return. And that's right. And apparently, um, reading up from learned websites, you could survive having 20% of your water replaced with heavy water. That you'd still live. Um, but if you went much higher than that, there'd be significant effects. And if you if you replaced your water by 
50% of heavy water. In other words, if half of your bodily water was heavy water, you'd die. Okay. Uh, that would be the lethal dose. Um, so uh, it's not something that I would advise. There are other species, though, that uh, are quite happy in heavy water, including some bacteria and and uh, actually algae as well. They, they're you know they, they don't have a problem with it. Mm. No, that's right. Uh, I was I, I'm looking at an article now, and um, uh, at twenty five percent replacement, um, you become sterile. That's right. So, um, yeah, we would, if, if the planet had been seeded with heavy water from um, those comets rather than the water we know and love today uh, and mistreat, I might add, uh, we, um, we would have to have adapted completely differently to be able to actually breed. So um, it's, it's a really interesting scenario to, uh, to consider. Most indeed. interesting indeed. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, we've answered the question. Uh, it's not as dramatic as you might think to, you know, to come, be confronted with heavy water. And, and there must be heavy water that naturally occurred on Earth at some stage. It's just yes, that's right. But it's it, obviously just not in great bulk. It's very, very rare. That's right. Uh, it's um, you know the, the the amount is is very small. Um, in fact, I've got a figure here that says only about one water molecule in 20 million naturally contains deuterium, which is heavy hydrogen. So it's a rarity. Mm. Uh, you said it's not radioactive, but um, interestingly, if you drink too much of it, you start to look like you're suffering radiation poisoning because it does damage the um, uh, the ability of the body to replicate DNA. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you do have... Yeah, there are issues in drinking. Too there are much issues. Food. Yeah, it's not it's not advisable. But yeah, it's, it's not going to kill you in minor doses. And as you said, I think last time we talked about it, you could swim in it. It wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be a big problem. But yep. yeah, you don't want to really guzzle too much of the stuff. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Does that mean there may be other kinds of water out there that we don't know about aside from this? I mean, this one's called D two O, isn't it? Isn't that it's? Um, well, yeah, because they've used the. D is sometimes the, the term used for heavy hydrogen, the, the hydrogen isotope. Deuterium, it stands for. Right. Um, so deuterium is heavy hydrogen. Look, uh, not really. Um, you know, you've, you've got you've got that suite of uh, normal water or heavy water, basically, uh, depending on uh, on just how much. Um, well, de- depending on what uh, on the uh, mass of the. Uh, of the hydrogen atoms with their additional neutrons. Mm, okay. Well, we've um, we've investigated it. Now we know what happens if you um, get stuck into too much heavy water. You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, I think we've got time for one quick question before we wrap up the, this episode. Um, I think I promised two, but we'll get back to the other one in a later episode. But uh, this one comes from Graham Gainsford, uh, and uh, this is uh, this is a really good question and one worth investigating. Do galaxies inside a dark matter halo travel through time more slowly? Could this explain the expansion discrepancy in the expansion rate as we sink into more dark matter uh, over time? It would seem like the outside was speeding up. I think this is an awesome question. Please answer it. I think it's an awesome question too, Graham. Thank you for asking. Yeah, actually, so do I. Um, it is a good question because we know from general relativity 
that uh, when you're in a gravitational field, you experience time dilation so that um, <clears throat> anybody viewing from the outside would see time slowing down for you. Um, and likewise, as you look from the inside out, you would see time speeding up <laughs> uh, on the outside. So uh, it's a great question to postulate the fact that we're sitting within uh, all galaxies, uh, and that means pl the planets of stars, are sitting within halos of dark matter. Um, and the dark matter outweighs normal matter by five to one. Uh, so uh, the, 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 I think the principle is correct, <clears throat> that you, you're in a, uh, in a regime where there is time dilation taking place. But um, the bottom line here is that it's only microscopically slight. And that's because you're not um, experiencing a very high gravitational gradient. On a, on a black hole, for example, where the gravity is changing very rapidly with distance, then you get uh, these weird effects of time dilation, like somebody appears to be frozen on the event horizon because time seems to have stopped for them. But in a gradient like the one we experience with dark matter, that sort of phenomenon is not happening. So uh, you've, you've got a much lower level of time dilation that you're talking about. And, and I think that would... Uh, I haven't sat down and done the, done the sums on this, but I don't think you could explain any of the the questions about uh, the expansion rate of the universe uh, by postulating gravitational time dilation from inside the dark matter halo. I could be wrong, but that is my gut feeling, uh, knowing you know about the way that dark matter behaves. But very interesting, a very interesting thought. And I think uh, Graham is to be uh, congratulated on, on, you know, thinking uh, outside the box like that. Very, very good. So he's right. It is an awesome question. I'm afraid we haven't really answered it properly, but we've done our best. It's one that's been tackled in science fiction uh, over many years, um, uh, time dilation and, and speeding up and slowing down of time. Uh, I've mentioned before uh, the movie Interstellar, which uh, demonstrates uh, the gravitational effect of a black hole on a planet that they visited and um, they were within the effective radius of the gravitational effect. And so for every hour, I think, they spent on the planet's surface, the time on their spaceship had uh, seen seven years pass. And, yes, <laughs> um, I think they were down on the planet for like uh, three or four hours. So when they got back, the colleague on the spaceship was 20-something years older. And yep. <laughs> it was just, it's mind-blowing. But w what really bl blows my mind is that's not actually science fiction. In that scenario, it would really happen. That's right, yeah. You'd, you'd, th there were other issues with that, like you'd get probably get spaghettified a bit by the yeah. strong gravitational... Yeah, let's, let, let's just let that one go. Yeah, yeah. But no, that's right. It's it's real physics that you're talking about there, which is, yeah, really quite good. And they've, quite. Done, they've done experiments on time using uh, highly sensitive clocks. I think you and I talked about that, um, yes. that, that uh, those two clocks that they had perfectly synchronised and they sent one to the top of a mountain or something. And when they checked them later, they were different. 
Indeed there were. Which That's right. Time was travelling faster for one or slower for the other. I can't yeah, remember. Yes, slow, slower the lower you are. The, the nearer the Earth's gravity you are, the slower you, your clocks are going. Yeah, well, that explains my scholastic ability. <laughs> Definitely. All right. Um, and, and, of course, we, we do thank you for your questions. We do get a lot of them. Uh, and, and sadly, I have to say, we've reached a point where we have to be super choosy and sometimes we will not get to them. But we are getting uh, people who just send us notes, Fred, which um, uh, yep. is, is lovely. So they, they just send us notes to say, hi or send us a photo or whatever and we, we certainly encourage that and uh, we, we welcome all your uh, your input uh, we we may not use a question on air or on the podcast but we certainly do read them all so bear that in mind and occasionally we'll answer them just with an email if they're um you know super boring oh no super um you know they're more uh, easily explained that way so um yeah bear that in mind uh, and I would also remind you of Patreon if you would like to become a subscriber to uh, Space Nuts via our Patreon account, patreon.com slash Space Nuts. And you will find us these days on YouTube and just about every other podcast platform. So uh, look, looking forward to um, offering you our next episode very, very soon. Fred, as always, thank you. It's been a pleasure. And a pleasure to talk to you too, Andrew. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Oh, look, uh, couldn't do it without you, really. <laughs> well, we'll see you Sounds next good. time. Yeah, see you next time. Professor Fred Watson, uh, half the team, actually probably 75% of the team here on Space Nuts. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thank you as always. We'll catch you again next week. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com.